0: How you guys doing? How many of you have uh, enjoyed the winds we've been having? Anybody? Now, I actually love the wind, but I tell you, it's wreaking havoc on my allergies. Any other uh, allergy sufferers out there? A few of you? Yeah. So I'm actually on medications. If I fall asleep, forgive me. Um, we thought we'd do a little contest. We're going to replay the video back, and if you can guess how many times I scratch my nose during the service, you might win a prize maybe, I don't know. Welcome to Element. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the back, or there may be some Bibles underneath the seats there. Uh, Feel free to take one if you don't own a Bible. Take it home with you. If you uh, just forgot yours, use that one. We have sermon notes on the communion tables all around the room. They look like this. They have the scriptures and some questions to go a little bit deeper. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app called YouVersion, click on uh, More and Events, and... Click on live, it brings us up by GPS, and you can follow along that way as well. So uh, thank you all for being here. My name is Eric. I am one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you again. So please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Uh, This is Hebrews chapter 3, verse 15, and it says, As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us all here this morning. We thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are working and that you're you're moving. and Just like the wind, Lord, that we talked about, that uh, we hear the sound of it, but we don't know where it's coming from, where it's going. But we know that everybody that's born of the Spirit, it's like that, Lord. And so we pray that you would be speaking to us today, that you would draw us near to you, that you would convict our hearts. And that we might understand the love that you have for us and the great lengths that you have gone to to bring us back to you as your people. So we lift today in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. <clears throat> All right, so uh, today we are continuing our uh, series called What in the World? Part 2. Most of you probably know what that is, but it's where we tackle different biblical passages or questions that make us say, what in the world does that mean? At the end of last year, we had you write down some of your questions, and we promised that we'd take some time this year to answer them, so that's what we're doing. Uh, Now, the question we're going to talk about this week, I have to warn you up front, it's a very difficult topic. It's a very very serious topic with serious implications, so it's kind of funny how Aaron decided to take this one off. (laughs) Now, actually, I chose this one. I am a glutton for punishment. Um, But I tell you, for me, today's question is particularly hard. It was a tough one to work through, and I really wrestled with this message. So I'm just going to jump right in because I have a lot to cover. So here we go. The question today is, what in the world is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Easy one, right? (laughs) Now, if you're keeping up with world events, you probably know that many people around the world are still being punished or even killed on charges of blasphemy. It's happening all over the place. As of 2012, 33 countries still had some form of anti-blasphemy laws on their legal, in their legal code. 21 of those nations were Muslim-majority nations, while the others were mainly European nations, plus India, Nigeria, Poland, and Singapore. And so blasphemy is still a very, very serious issue in our world today. Now, what is it? What is blasphemy? Well, it is the unique sin of speaking evil against God. It's saying things about God that are not true about him. or speaking of God in a defamatory or derogatory manner. And we see in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 24, that the penalty for blasphemy was death by stoning. And so if anyone spoke an evil word against God, they stoned them. It's very, very serious. And it's also very confusing because who gets to decide who is blaspheming, right? That's one of the issues in the world today. Who gets to decide when somebody is really blaspheming? You know, some people may think that blasphemy today is voting for the opposing political candidate. You know, if you're Aaron, you might think blasphemy is country music or listening to boy bands or, or something like that. But in the New Testament, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it's also called the unpardonable sin or the unforgivable sin, and you may have heard those terms. And we, as we'll see by the very words of our Lord Jesus himself, he states that there is an unforgivable sin, and it is to blaspheme or to speak against the Holy Spirit. Now, unfortunately, there has been a lot of misunderstandings about what this sin really is, and it's caused a lot of fear and a lot of distress among many believers who think that they may have committed this unforgivable sin. Some actually live in constant and paralyzing fear. They're burdened, and they're broken, and they're grieved, And they're terrified that maybe some sinful habit that they can't break or some recurring transgression that they can't avoid will forever exclude them from the presence of God. And so their confidence is shattered and the assurance of their salvation is all but lost. I can remember myself being a young believer and reading about this unpardonable sin and thinking that my frequent failures put me so close to that unforgivable sin because maybe I offended God or I offended the Holy Spirit in such a way that I was reaching that place of unforgiveness. And so it's really important that we understand what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. But first, we need to be reminded of one thing, and that is that God has revealed himself to us in Scripture as a forgiving God. By virtue of his very nature, he is a God of forgiveness. We see that throughout all the Old Testament and the New Testament. Psalm 86.5 says, You, Lord, are good and ready. You're eager to forgive. Psalm 103.3 says, He forgives all your inequities. God reveals Himself to us in Exodus 34. and verse 6, He says, The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving inequity and transgression and sin. And at the end of the prophet Micah's message, in Micah 7.18, He says, Who is a God like you, pardoning inequity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? You will cast all our sin into the depths of the sea. And the same thing goes for the New Testament. The Apostle John, he says, My little children, he has forgiven you all of your sins for his name's sake. And Paul said to the Ephesians, He has granted us redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And it doesn't matter how severe the sin, God can still forgive There are people who think that they have sinned, some kind of sin, so bad, so heinous or gross that there will never be forgiveness. But that is not the case. What's the worst sin that you can think any human being could or or would or has ever committed? What's the worst one? Killing Jesus. How about that? Killing Jesus, the Son of God. Could there be anything worse than that? It not only embodies murder, but the most hateful, venomous, vicious rejection of God. And that is precisely the sin which Jesus demonstrates is forgivable. In Luke twenty three and verse thirty four, as he's hanging on the cross, he looks down at those who have taken his life and he says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Even killing the Son of God is forgivable. And it isn't the volume of sin that is forgivable any any less than the kind of sin. It doesn't matter how much you sin or how many times you've fallen. We're told that God's mercies are new every morning. So this is very important. That's the essence of the biblical message, that man is a sinner and God forgives. And so if or when we consider the fact that there is an unforgivable sin, it demands our clear understanding because on the surface, it may appear that God is going against the very grain of his nature unless we understand truly what he's saying here. So... It's a little bit of background, a few weeks ago in our authority series, we were going through Matthew chapter 9, and we were talking about Jesus' authority over spiritual forces, where he healed a mute man who was demon-oppressed, and everyone saw it, they, they marveled, because they were astonished that clearly Jesus had this supernatural power over evil spirits, and they were beginning to realize that he might be the Christ, the promised Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. And since it was impossible for the Pharisees to deny the supernatural results of Jesus' power, instead what they do is they attribute that power to Satan. And they say that he cast out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus, in this case, he just kept right on going, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and affliction. But unfortunately, this wasn't the only time that the religious elite witnessed the true power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus and knowingly spoke evil about him, even attributing his miraculous works to Satan. You can see this in Mark chapter three, and Luke chapter eleven, and in Matthew chapter twelve, and that's where we're going to go today. So you can turn your Bibles to Luke, ta- uh, Matthew chapter twelve, if you want to, if you want to go there. But before we do, we have to remember a couple of things. And one is we need to remember that the Lord Jesus, when He came, He took on the role of a servant. The Apostle Paul, he wrote to the Philippians in chapter two and verse six. He said. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus voluntarily set aside his prerogatives of deity, and he allowed the Father's will to be expressed through him. This is a very explicit fact that's repeated over and over in the New Testament. Jesus said many times himself that, I have come to do my Father's will. I have come to do the will of him who sent me. And from the very first moment that we meet Jesus as a boy at the age of 12, he makes it very clear the reason he came. He says, I have come to do my Father's business. I must be about my Father's business. But we also have to remember this, and this is very important, that not only was he submissive to the Father's will, but he was totally dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. We see that from his baptism, through his temptation in the wilderness, through his preaching and his teaching and his, his healing and his delivering. In Mark chapter 1, verse 10, speaking of his baptism, it said that when he came up out of the water, immediately the heavens were torn apart and the Spirit descended on him like a dove. And then we read in Luke 4, 1 that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. He returned from the Jordan after his baptism and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And in in chapter 4, verse 14, he then returns from there. It says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And the report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And in verse 18 of chapter 4, Jesus himself said, "...the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed." The Holy Spirit energized what Jesus did in his ministry, from his baptism, through his temptation in the wilderness, through his teaching, his preaching, his healing, all of it. Everything Jesus said and everything that he did was empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. So we're going to look in our Bibles at Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 22. The point is, when we looked at Jesus, when we evaluated Jesus, you were in fact evaluating the very will of the Father and the very power of the Spirit. It was manifest in his human form. So this is Matthew 12, verse 22. It says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Well, this time, Jesus is not going to let it go he's going to issue them one of the strongest warnings that you're going to find in the scripture. But first, he starts by destroying their very stupid and illogical comments by stating the obvious. In verse 25, he says, Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast them out, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Why would someone who has a kingdom fight against themselves? It makes no sense for Satan to destroy himself. It goes against his purpose. But that's interesting, right? Because rarely does our sin or our rebellious justification for sin make any sense. Like the first sin that we ever see in the Bible, where Adam and Eve disobeyed God and Adam says, it's her fault, it's not my fault and we still do that today and it makes no sense at all in this case the pharisees they recognize the supernatural power of god but they won't acknowledge it and they won't submit to jesus as the promised savior and they only have two options here only god or satan those are the only two options because those are the only two supernatural kingdoms that exist and they opt for satan seriously you got two choices and that's who you go for i mean come on verse 29 or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. He's saying only by the Spirit of God who is stronger than Satan can, can, be, can Satan be overcome. And, and his demons, can, they can only be overcome because only the kingdom of God is stronger than the kingdom of Satan. In verse 30 he says, Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever doesn't gather with me scatters. So here's Jesus, the king, and he's ushering in his kingdom. And since they are not for Jesus, they are against him. Those are the only two options for anyone. There's no neutrality here. By Jesus' own words, if we are not with him and gathering, then we are against him and we are scattering. And rather than gathering people into God's kingdom, they were scattering them. Verse 31, now we start getting into the meat of it here. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Which sins will be forgiven? Every sin and blasphemy. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. There is no sin that is beyond the redeeming, cleansing blood of Jesus. None except one. Singular sin. And by its very definition, it puts you beyond forgiveness. Now... Sin and blasphemy, in a sense, they are distinct, although blasphemy is a sin. Sin covers a large category of evil deeds and thoughts and attitudes, and blasphemy is one kind of sin in that broader category. And the Apostle Paul, he he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6-9, and he talks about this list, just a small sampling of different kinds of sin, from sexual immorality to idolatry and adultery and homosexuality and stealing greed, drunkenness, cheating, and so forth. But in verse 11, he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Now, this is important, so stay with me here. Jesus said that every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven. But this isn't some unconditional, universalist statement that no matter what you do, no matter what you believe, that all of your sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. No, we are forgiven when the conditions are met. And the condition for forgiveness of every sin is very clearly given in the New Testament as repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ and in the work that he made possible on the cross that is the condition for repentance, and it's all made possible by the Holy Spirit of God. We read in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as of some count slowness, but He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. In the Apostle John, he wrote... In 1 John one nine, he said, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we see that true confession, it, it involves a change of heart and a change of mind where we agree with God about our sin. And we turn away from our sin in repentance and we turn towards God in faith and we believe in Jesus and we receive him and what he has done for us. We receive him as our Savior. And it's then that God forgives all of our sin and even our blasphemy. Now, the classic illustration for this was the Apostle Paul himself speaking about himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He said, "...though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus." The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul said, I was the worst. I am the worst of sinners. I was a blasphemer, speaking evil against God. But even Paul was forgiven. Again and again. That's the message. Forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. God will graciously forgive any sin, even the sin of blasphemy. And you might ask, well, Would a Christian commit that sin? Yes, Christians commit that sin. Anytime you think a thought or or you say a word against God, you blasphemed. Anytime you had an evil thought, or even if you were thinking, "God, that wasn't fair," in a sense, that's a blasphemy. Look at verse thirty-two. Jesus said, "And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Either in this age." or in the age to come. Now the word speak here it refers to a continual pattern of speech. This wasn't some one-time momentary slip up. So because these people they continually spoke evil against the work of God's spirit, it put them close if not past the point of no return, the place where they became unforgivable, forever lost both now and throughout all eternity. He says that even speaking against Jesus himself in his humanity as the Son of Man will be forgiven, but not if you speak against the Holy Spirit. Now, one might say, well, you know, he's a carpenter from Nazareth, like some of them did. You know, I'm really not that impressed. You know, I bought one of his tables and it was wobbly, you know, maybe because you like to complain, not because Jesus was a bad carpenter or anything like that. And so it may not be clear to them. They could speak a word against the human Jesus in his humiliation. You know, that's forgivable. You may not know the facts. You may not perceive the divine. And we see that. That's happened, ironically, in John chapter 10, verse 30, when Jesus said, I and the Father are one. The Jews, they picked up stones to stone him and to put him to death. And Jesus answered them and he said, I've shown you many good works. Which of those good works are you going to stone me? And the Jews said to him, It's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, claim to be God. You make yourself to be God. They accused Jesus of blasphemy because he's claiming to be God. They didn't get it. They didn't understand who he really was. And so now Jesus, he's turning the tables on them, and he's going to show them who the real blasphemers are. So what's happening here is when you have seen the supernatural ministry of the Spirit of God through Christ and you conclude that it's of the devil, you can't be forgiven because now you're speaking against the Spirit of God and the power of God that was made manifest through Jesus. So in a very real sense, you're speaking against his deity. You're speaking against his divine nature, and you're calling that satanic. And that's what's considered unforgivable. And you're probably thinking, well, well why? Well, stay with me. Because forgiveness, again, it's based on repentance and it's based on faith in Christ. And if they had concluded that Jesus was filled with the devil rather than the Holy Spirit, they certainly weren't going to listen to his message about repentance and put their faith in him. And so the reason they can never be forgiven is because they could never believe. They would never come to the place of belief. And why is that? Because to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to reject the very one who illuminates our hearts to repentance and faith. That's what that means. Sam Storms, he put it this way in a very great explanation. He said, This was not a one-time momentary slip or an inadvertent mistake in judgment, but a persistent, lifelong rebellion in the face of inescapable truth. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not a careless act, but a calloused attitude. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, therefore, it's not just unbelief, but unashamed unbelief that arises not from ignorance of what is true, but in defiance of what one knows beyond a doubt to be true. It's not a mere denial, but a determined denial. Not a mere rejection, but a wanton, willful, wicked, wide-eyed rejection. R.C. Sproul, he says that the unforgivable sin is blasphemy, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit by calling a Jesus by calling Jesus a devil, by being enlightened, by that same Spirit. According to John Calvin, he says, we can only commit such sacrilege only when we knowingly endeavor to extinguish the Spirit. There can be no salvation if the work of the Spirit is knowingly rejected. This act, it reveals a heart that is so hard that repentance becomes impossible. And so ultimately, like Augustine said, it is unrepentance that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And so what we're seeing here in the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is that these are spoken words that are unforgivable because they reveal hearts that are so hard that they will never repent. They will never repent. And we'll see that in Jesus' next words in, in verse 33 of Matthew 12. He said, Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. It's not that God won't forgive all those who come to him in repentance and faith. It's that those who commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit have become so hard-hearted that they willfully cut themselves off from the only person who can grant them repentance. You see, that's the unique and special role of the Holy Spirit, to apply the Father's plan and the Son's accomplishment of it to our hearts. It's the Spirit's work to open up our eyes and to grant us repentance and to make us beneficiaries of all that the Father has planned and all that Jesus has done for us. He's saying that all of the blasphemies that you repent of will be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven because it puts you beyond repentance. And if a sin makes it impossible for you to repent, then that is an unforgivable sin because forgiveness is promised only to those who genuinely repent. So naturally, the question comes up, can a Christian, can a believer commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? You know, maybe you've said something long ago that haunts you because of its blasphemous nature. Or maybe you've struggled with blasphemous thoughts or maybe even spoken them out loud. Are you guilty of this unforgivable sin or might you be? Well, by its very definition, to be a true believer, you cannot commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Because a believer is somebody who has already turned to God in repentance in faith in Jesus Christ and his redeeming work on the cross. And to those, the Holy Spirit indwells them and lives in them forever to protect them. Jesus said in John 14, verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper who to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. And Paul said to the Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 13, he says, In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Now, we know we as believers, we still sin. And we can grieve the Holy Spirit by continuing to walk in sin. But Paul goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Again, we were sealed, and having been sealed by the Holy Spirit, it's the guarantee that God will complete the work of redemption that He has started in each person who has trusted in Him, in each one of us as believers. So no, you cannot, as a believer, commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So then the next question is, so is there a danger for people today of committing this unforgivable sin? Well, do you know that it's possible for people to go to church for years, hearing the gospel over and over, even becoming church members and never commit their lives to Jesus in true repentance and faith? The book of Hebrews tells us that it's possible for people to be very close to the kingdom of God and ultimately reject the truth that they've been shown, putting them in this unforgivable state. Hebrews was basically written to Christian Jews, but periodically there's warnings there to unchristian Jews, non-Christian Jews. They heard the gospel, but they never received Jesus as Savior and Lord. They had all the intellectual information. They had that stimulation. They had proof, and they had the evidence there. they have seen it all, and they heard it all. And maybe even they believe it in their minds, but they won't come to Christ. They won't take that extra step because they're afraid of being ostracized from their community or being put out of the synagogue and so they're holding back and that's what we see here in hebrews chapter 6 in verse 4 it says for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the holy spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of god and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him to contempt. On the surface of it, it may seem like this experience indicates salvation, but there is no reference to anything that resembles real salvation in these verses. There's no justification. There's no redemption. There's no sanctification. No new birth. No being made holy. No being made righteous. None of the normal New Testament language for salvation is used in these verses. And none of this language is used elsewhere in the New Testament, speaking of salvation. It says that they were enlightened. And that refers to intellectual perception of spiritual or biblical belief, biblical truth. They were aware of, they were instructed, they were informed of the truth. It doesn't refer to belief or disbelief at all. They were enlightened by the gospel of Jesus, who is the light of the world, but they were not saved. And it's to such people like this that the Apostle Peter, he wrote in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 20, he said, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. And so we see that because of their unbelief, the light that was given to them has become a judgment against them. It says they tasted of the heavenly gift, which refers to Jesus himself and the gift of salvation that he gives to us. They tasted, they sampled its quality and its character. They were close enough to taste, but they didn't feast on Jesus, the bread of life. They didn't eat his flesh and drink his blood the way Jesus described in John chapter 6 of those who intimately abide in him. They didn't drink the living water that he gives that leads to eternal life. They took a sip. They took a taste. It says they shared in the Holy Spirit, which has to do with association, but not possession. They didn't possess the Holy Spirit, or better yet, the Holy Spirit did not possess them. They weren't indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They were around when he was around. And they witnessed the the power of the Holy Spirit, just like the Pharisees did in Matthew chapter 12. But the Bible never speaks of Christians being associated with the Holy Spirit, but with them being filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit living within them. And again, in verse 5, they tasted the good words of God and they didn't actually eat them. And they witnessed the power of God's kingdom, yet they still didn't believe. Now, don't get me wrong. Tasting is not bad. It's the first step to eating. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. To some degree, all of us have to taste before we actually eat. But the problem is stopping with tasting. Anybody who has heard the gospel or even professed Christ should take Paul's advice in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. He said, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith test yourselves or do you not realize this about yourselves that jesus christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test these people here they were as close to the kingdom as you can get on the very edge of repentance with full knowledge and he's saying that to fall back from there would be fatal because it would be impossible to renew them again to a place of repentance. Because when one rejects Jesus at the peak of experience, of knowledge, and conviction, he's not going to accept him at a lesser level. And so salvation becomes impossible. So this sin, it has eternal ramifications. But what's interesting about it, it doesn't wait until death to shut the door of grace. It can shut the door of grace now in some cases. And we don't know that as people. We don't know who those are that... That might shut on. But we do know that there are people in this world where God will shut the door of grace. And according to this, their last state is worse than their first. How is that possible? What's our first state spiritually when we're born into this world? We're dead, right? We're dead in our trespasses and sins. What could be worse than that? To be dead in your trespasses and sins with no heart of repentance and no hope for grace? During World War II, there was an aircraft carrier in the North Atlantic, and it was at a very high point in the war, and the carrier was engaged in battle, and it was a very dark night, and there were enemy ships and submarines throughout the area, and six pilots took off from the carrier, and they wanted to see if there were any enemy submarines that could be attacked. And while they were all up in the air, the enemy attacked by air, and the order was given for a total blackout, and the carrier had to shut off every light which left those six pilots out there flying around without any ability to to locate the ship in the darkness of that black night. And they would radio in, and the first pilot said, give us some light so we can land. We'll we'll make it through the artillery. We'll we'll fly through it. And the operator said, I can't. I'm not permitted to give any light. It's a blackout. It's a total blackout. The second pilot said, "Just, just give us one light. And the operator said, we can't. Each successive pilot tried to get the operator to break his orders, which he didn't. And the record says that the operator, finally, he could do no more. He reached over, and he turned the switch, and he broke radio contact. And six red-blooded aviators in the prime of their manhood went down into that cold North Atlantic and out into eternity. Now, none of us here can judge when it happens, but there is a time when God turns out the lights, and you can never find your way back, when further opportunity for salvation is forever lost. And I believe that's why Jesus says to us in John chapter 12, verse 36, While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And why Paul, he says to us in 2 Corinthians, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And why the Holy Spirit says to us, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Maybe you're listening to this message today and you're thinking, Man, have I crossed that line? I don't think you have. We as people, we don't get to make that call. But what we know is we know that God is good. He's so much better than any of us. And the beauty of forgiveness is that the price of forgiveness was paid for at the cross, at that moment, if we would just come to Jesus. And he's calling out to each one of us. And we thank God for that. The band's going to come up right now. And as they do, we're going to go to communion and that's when we remember exactly the price that Jesus paid for our redemption, for our forgiveness, so that we could be reconciled back to God. And we take that cracker and we break it. We remember his body that was broken for us. We dip it in the wine and in, or in the grape juice. We remember his blood that was shed for us to reconcile us back to God. And we're going to worship God as the band plays and as we sing. We'll worship God Through our gifts and offerings, there are offering boxes on the sidewall and in the back. We give back to God a little of what he's blessed us with. It's just a part of our worship. And we'll worship God through fellowship. We encourage you to hang out in the back and talk to one another. And there's going to be people in the back hallway there to pray for you. If you feel God is speaking to you today, and he's calling you to, to come to him. And maybe you've never done that before. They would love to pray with you. So let's pray now. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives. We thank you for your patience. We thank you, Lord, that none of us could come to you if it wasn't for your Holy Spirit, Lord, that opens our eyes, that grants us repentance, that shows us our sin, Lord, and that calls us back to you, into relationship with you. Father we pray that you would speak to each one of us here open our eyes to see your goodness just how much you love us and Father give us the strength to come to you to lay aside our pride and set us free Lord from the past from the sins that have bogged us down that have plagued us, Lord, that have caused us shame. Help us to remember that Jesus paid the price for those sins, and as you hung there on that cross, Jesus, you bore our shame so that we could be free, so that we could stand up and say, thank you, God, for saving me. Help us to know and understand your mercy, Lord, today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.